I love the sermon. I love the sermon that that song preaches. If you're able to sing those words, that is real faith. Declaring that by the shedding of his blood, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he overcame, he gives us victory. If you can say that, that's real faith. And that's where it begins. (laughs) You know, it's... I'm mad at Corey right now, so I've fallen into the temptation of being mad at Corey. He always brings these, it seems like when I preach, he brings these high-powered, theologically sound, heart-impacting songs just before I have to get up here. And so I've fallen into the temptation of being mad at him. So we're going to pray about that in just a moment, but listen to this. Real faith, this is what we're talking about today, continuing on in our sermon series in James But listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations will rage. Kingdoms will totter. He he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, church. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we come and behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then he says this, whatever you bring in today, now is a time for rest as we let the word of God wash over us. And he says, be still church, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. He is our fortress. So as you take a seat, I was kind of, I was challenged a couple of, well, the last time I preached. As I knelt down to pray, a guy came up to me after the service, and he's like, man, if I wasn't sitting in the middle of the row, I would have knelt down with you and prayed. So I'm going to kneel in prayer before our Lord, before we get into this. And here's what I would encourage you to do. If you are in a place where you can kneel down, I encourage you to kneel down. If you are in a place where you cannot, let's slide to the front edge of our seats. Let's put our elbows on our knees. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's turn our focus to him as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, It is by your good and perfect will that each one of us is here today, Lord, as we recognize your grace is poured out on us. So, so much grace poured out on us. Undeserved favor. Lord, we don't deserve our very next breath, yet you give it to us. Thank you for bringing us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for making us your bride. 
Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your kingdom. And now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray by the power and might of your Holy Spirit that you will prepare the hearts of each one to receive your word. Lord, that your words would flow very freely through me to your church. I pray, Lord, that you would be the one that removes all distractions, that you would settle us in on what you have for us to hear from you today. And we pray this all in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Real faith. So we're in this series. What does it mean to have real faith? And we started with understanding that we are called to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of various kinds, because we know that that is the testing of our faith so that we would develop perseverance, steadfastness, strengthen our relationship with the Lord so that we would continue to grow into becoming more mature and more complete, not lacking anything. Well, today we're going to look at temptation. Trials and temptation are so closely mingled together that it's very hard to tell the difference between the two, so we're not going to make much over that. But understand this, anytime you are presented with a trial in life, anytime there is a temptation that will come along with that trial or 10 or 100 temptations to respond to that hardship in a way that is not honoring to God. But temptations aren't the real issue. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. The real issue is found in a much deeper place than that, and it's in the heart of each person that is born onto this planet. Listen to this article that I found, a 2019 New York Times article. And the headline read this, Princeton graduate killed father, gets 30 years to life. And this is how the article goes, and it's adjusted The truth remains the same, but it's adjusted for length and so forth. But a jury had rejected Thomas Gilbert Jr.'s insanity defense, sentencing him to life in prison with a possibility of parole after 30 years, the maximum penalty allowed under the law. Deciding that he had murdered his father after the old man slashed his weekly allowance. In 2015, Thomas Gilbert Jr. showed up unannounced at his parents' midtown Manhattan apartment and asked to speak alone with his father about business. Minutes later, his father, a hedge fund manager, lay dead with a fatal gunshot wound. As details emerged, the murder stunned New York's high society in which the Gilberts were well known. The police said Mr. Gilbert, a Princeton graduate, who was never able to to obtain consistent employment, had killed his 70-year-old father because his weekly allowance was cut. Because his weekly allowance was cut. He became a symbol of ungrateful greed, a child of privilege who turned to murder when he feared he was losing his lavish lifestyle. His mother, Shelley Gilbert, told the court that her son had not acted out of revenge and a hunger for undeserved money, but that Mr. Gilbert had become so mentally ill, she said, that he could not comprehend that his actions were illegal or immoral when he shot his father, Thomas Gilbert Sr. The lead prosecutor described Mr. Gilbert as a sociopath who killed his father in cold blood. He wanted his father dead, and so he devised a plan to murder him. The chief justice agreed with the jury, saying that Mr. Gilbert was responsible for the crime. You knew exactly what you were doing, she told him. 
You were not insane at the time of the murder, and you are not insane now. In summation, the lead prosecutor described Mr. Gilbert as an entitled man who failed to make his own way despite being born with many advantages. Mr. Gilbert attended private boarding schools on the Upper East Side and in New England. He graduated from Princeton University with an economics degree, and rather than working, Mr. Gilbert felt more at home surfing, traveling to faraway destinations, and frequenting exclusive social clubs in Manhattan and in the Hamptons. Mr. Ortner, the leading prosecutor, acknowledged in his closing argument that Mr. Gilbert, like many New Yorkers, suffered from mental health conditions commonly treated with medicine. Yet, he argued, Mr. Gilbert's judgment was not impaired the day of the murder. He killed his father the same day the older man cut his allowance, then placed the gun in his father's right hand to make it look like a suicide. The defendant didn't want to grow up and become an adult, Mr. Ortner said. When his father tried to push him along in that direction and cut his allowance, he threw the ultimate temper tantrum. That's a pretty outrageous account, isn't it? Makes me think of Jasper's sermon last week. James 1, starting at verse 9, let the, love, let, the brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because like a fat flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty is destroyed. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Thomas Gilbert was unaware of the rising of the scorching sun on his life. He was completely unaware because he had given in time after time after time to the temptations that were laid before him. He fed his own selfish desire and he saw his life fade away in the midst of his own pursuits. Guess what his allowance was? Well, let me start with this. Guess how old he was when he murdered his father? He was 30 years old. He was 30 years old. Now, guess what his allowance was up to the age of 30? $1,000. And kids, you're like, yeah, that sounds really awesome. $1,000? How about this? $1,000 a week. Not a month, a week. He was given $1,000 a week for at least what I assume to be 10 years. He's 30 years old. His dad cuts his allowance to $300, $300 a week. The defense said that he was insane. His mother said that he was mentally ill. But the judge and the jury said, you're not insane. You weren't insane at the time you killed your father, and you're not insane now. And now it's time to stand and pay the consequences for your ultimate temper tantrum. How does a person get to this place? How do you think he got there? Like I'm standing up here right now before you and as soon as I read this, the first thing I want to do is point the finger at the parents. The parents are to blame. How in the world can you give a man $1,000 a week for 10 years and expect him not to live a selfish lifestyle and then to simply cut it to $300 a week? 
outrageous. My confession is my first want is to point my finger at, at the parents. The second would be this, society, what he was raised in, a position of wealth, a place of wealth, of excess. I mean, for real, who could blame a guy for not wanting to live that lifestyle? For 30 years, that's what he was taught life is all about. Maybe some would be tempted to say that it was his, that it was God. Well, God made him mentally insane. God made him to be the way he is, and so therefore he couldn't help himself. Here's what we're going to learn today. As trials come into life, so does temptation. And as temptation comes in, temptation becomes that which God intends to use to reveal the very true nature of who we are and what is deep in our hearts. He himself, Mr. Gilbert, was the one that was to blame. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. You know it very well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord is the one who searches the heart and tests the mind to give to every man, every single man, according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And guess what? Mr. Gilbert is in prison for 30 years because of what he did. Matthew chapter 15 says this, for out of the heart, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus said that in his time here on earth. That's what comes out of the heart of the man that lives a life separate from relationship with Jesus Christ. Thomas Gilbert's great temptation was money and was play. I wonder what it is for you today. What is that temptation that is dangled in front of you that causes you to reveal the true nature of who you are? Today's passage provides us both a warning and a hope from God. We have an evil heart, church. We have evil desires. But each one is tempted when by his own desire. That thing that which determines what he is. I believe this about my life. When I take a look into my past, there's, there's one thing I believe I can truly own, and that's the wrong that I've done. Anything good that I have done has been provoked by the person of Jesus Christ in my life. Own evil desire. Temptation reveals it. But let me, let me give you an upfront hope. Jesus knows our hearts, and he draws us with every good and perfect gift that he has from us, that he showers on us every moment of every day. Are we given to temptation that the world and that the enemy dangles in front of our weak flesh, or are we given to the good and the perfect things that God has for us? Let's look at today's passage. James 1, 13 to 18. That's where we're going to be. Beginning at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, after desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
and every perfect gift is from above, coming, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Someone asked me a question a long time ago. What do you most look forward to when you get to heaven? And and next to seeing Jesus face to face and next to seeing the loved ones that went before me, the thing I most look forward to when I get to heaven is this, that there will be no temptation flowing through my mind and in front of my eyes. I look forward to that. What about you? Wouldn't life be grand, though, if we didn't have temptation constantly in front of us? I think it would be. After all, temptation is the very thing that leads me to my sin. If I wasn't tempted to do this, I wouldn't sin. But here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 18, woe to the world for temptations to sin. He names the place where temptation comes from. God is not the source of temptation. The world is. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. And then he says this, for it is necessary for temptations to sin. To come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. He says it is necessary for temptation to come. Why, God? Why temptation? It's the very thing that provokes me to sin. Well, without temptation to sin, I would have no idea what's truly in my heart, and I believe that is true for you too. If you're not tempted to sin, you're not going to sin. And if you don't sin, it's not revealing what is truly deep in your heart. Sin being the expression of the flesh that makes up who you are. So, with that in mind, what do we do with temptation? What are we going to do when temptation comes? So we're going to answer that question in four different ways today according to this passage. What do I do when temptation comes? Here's the first one. I must own my own desires. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when, when, each person, when he is tempted, you cannot avoid it. You can't avoid it. You can hole yourself up in a, in a hole in the side of a mountain, but I promise you this, because you are a man or a woman born into this earth, temptation will still find you there. Each person is tempted when he is what? When he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. Temptation is not the problem. Temptation is the revealer of the problem. The real problem lies deep within the heart of man. And that's his evil desire. The New American Standard says that that each person is tempted when he is enticed by his own lust. He is enticed by his own lust. The NIV, the New New International Version says that each person is tempted when he is enticed by his own evil desire. Scripture declaring what our heart is. Here's the best way I can draw a picture for this. My dog is like a year and three months old. His nature says, I want meat. And the expression of that is when he lays in the kitchen or stands right next to when you're making whatever, he's just drooling. I pray to God, this is a temptation for me to just not want him around. When he's drooling, he's only expressing his true nature. I want meat. 
And so the other day, Wendy steps out of the kitchen with a pan full of little Smokies, and when she came back, guess what? There's no little Smoky there. The dog ate him. Here, we can keep going on about this silly dog. But listen, he craves meat because that's what he is. His nature says, I must have this. I have caught him numerous times coming back from a wonder in the woods. His nose will smell a dead squirrel 10 miles away, and he comes back with the tail sticking out of his mouth. His nature says this, I must have that. He can't help himself. Temptation drew him to it. He couldn't help himself. He took it, and I say, Brew, get over here. Drop it. Drop it. And you know, his, his head goes down and he starts cowering around, but he finds his way over to me and he's like, I want to be so obedient. Please help me to be obedient. I can't. It's my nature to want to eat this thing. And so he'll come over to me and I take, I have to pry his mouth open as he stands there. It's like his nature is fighting against his desire for obedience. And I finally pry it open and I'm able to extract the squirrel tail first from his mouth. Thomas Gilbert, true nature, his own desire was driven by the temptation that came from money, from play, from entertainment, a life of sensuality that only money can buy. What do evil desires look like? Galatians 5 has a list of them. I'm sure you've heard it. These are the works of the flesh. These are the expressions of the heart. This is our true nature that comes out of us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Let me remind you, Matthew chapter 15 says that from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus says this is what our heart is. The apostle Paul says this is what our heart is. It is our nature. And without the sin Without temptation, we have no idea what is inside of us because we're not provoked to it. We're not provoked to it. Out of the heart come these evil things. God, if you would just remove this temptation from me. But if he did, you still would have no idea what you're doing. You would have no idea what's deep in your heart. So church, think about your heart right now. What are the temptations that this world will hang in front of you that will cause you to respond and reveal the true nature of who you are? You need to have it. Temptations must come. You need to own it. And here's why. Here's why you need to own it. Because the moment you're able to say, this is who I am, owning my own sin... Owning my own sinful desires leads to this. It leads to repentance. Without ownership, you will not repent. It leads to repentance. And with with repentance comes forgiveness. And with forgiveness comes healing. And with healing comes victory. And the temptation starts to fade more and more and more as you have victory over that which tempts you. And you let Jesus take control of the desires of your heart. 
When temptation comes, remember this, be thankful for them because they are revealing who you truly, truly are. Own your own desires, church. They are the sum of who you are. And it declares that we need the person of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross for us to make a way for us to escape these things. Hey, here's another one. What do I do when temptation comes? I must resist the blame game. Look at verse 13. Let no one, when he is tempted, say that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He doesn't tempt anybody. Jesus declared, temptation comes from the world. That is an evil thing. Temptation is evil. God has no part in tempting you. I think of it even, we're tempted when we sin to, to blame the temptation. Well, if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have done this. If this carrot of temptation would have, wouldn't have been dangled in front of my mouth, I would not have taken the bite. When you sin, who do you blame? When your heart is truly revealed, who do you blame? I wouldn't have done this if she wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have acted this way if my parents would treat me this way. I wouldn't have a fit of rage in my workplace if my boss would treat me this way. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have if, if, if. From the fall, the name blame began. We see God walking in the, walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. He's trying, he's, He's looking for Adam and Eve, and he says, Adam, where are you? And he says, here, and he says, I'm naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? And, and so it unfolds. God reveals to them that you have fallen. And Adam, first thing he does is says, hey, listen, God, this woman that you gave me, so he blames God, and he points the finger at his wife. That's the reason why I sinned. That's the reason why I took the forbidden fruit. Eve says, hey, it wasn't my fault. If the serpent wouldn't have been there, I would have never been tempted to take the bite and I took it, but it's so it's his fault. That began from the beginning. We are so tempted to blame our spouses, our parents, our surrounding society. We even want to tempt, or we're even tempted to say that the devil is the one that made me do it. But as we learned earlier, we are held responsible into account for every decision we make, for everything that flows from our hearts. Here's a word for you. If you are, if you are in a rough marriage and you believe that your spouse is the one that is broken and that if your spouse wasn't broken, you wouldn't be tempted to go after the things that you go after, If you believe that your spouse is the one that needs to be fixed, what you're saying is that woman, that man that you gave me is the reason why I have the issue I have today. I want you to know this, that no matter who you blame, it ultimately leads back to God. Because God is our sovereign Lord over all things and he arranges events in our lives in such a way as he sees fit to get his good and perfect will out of our lives. He has given you the spouse he has given you. Kids, he has given you the parents he has given you. No matter how they are reacting and responding to you, no matter how they treat you, you ultimately are responsible for every evil thought, every angry word spoken, every 
You bear the responsibility. God has brought them, these people into your life. He has placed you in the community he has, in the schoolroom he has, in order to use those things to prune you and make you into his likeness and to reveal to you what's deep in your heart. No matter who you blame, it's ultimately leading back to God. But James tells us when we are tempted, we cannot say it is God that is tempting us. He is not the one. Why should I not blame and own what I really am? This is why, church, because owning our own sinful desire leads us to repentance, and repentance leads to forgiveness, and forgiveness leads to healing, and with healing comes victory. And don't we all want victory over this that sits deep in our hearts, sinful expressions of who we really are? Let's resist the blame game, church. Let's own it, our own evil desire, okay? Here's a third one. What do I do when, what do I do when temptation comes? I must count the cost of giving in. Look at verse 15. Then, then, after temptation has been placed in front of us, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is such a sobering verse. For everyone that would count him or herself a repeat offender, you're in relationship with the Lord, and yet you continue to fall for this same temptation over and over and over again. Desire is being conceived. You have made a plan. This is how I'm going to go after that sin. This is how I'm going to go after that temptation. Desire is conceived. It gives birth to sin. You're like, okay, plan is made. Right now, I'm going to receive the temptation. I'm going to latch on to it. It's going to turn into sin because I'm going after it. And as I go after it, I enjoy it for just a moment. But James says, as we do that, when it becomes fully grown, it brings forth death. Conceived, a plan determined in your mind. Birth, hey, it's now out. Here it is, fully grown. When sin becomes fully grown in our lives, it leads to death. Parents, know this of your kids. This is what they do, and we must train them out of that repetitious nature of going after the same thing over and over and over again. Thomas Gilbert's parents didn't make him do what he did but they certainly didn't train him to run away from those temptations that were hanging in front of him. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now listen, this quickly brings us to the fourth, and I couldn't wait to get to this one because the first three are so heavy, aren't they? They're so heavy. But what do I do when temptation comes? I must receive the things that God has for me. I must receive the things that God has for me and trust that they will satisfy. We have to trust that they will satisfy. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good and perfect gift. Here's the way I want to look at this with you today. Crossroads. We stand at a crossroads. There's a road of temptation that is ever changing, always changing. Imagine right now you're on a highway, the highway of sin. Your foot is on the gas. Temptation is constantly dangled in front of you, and you're going after it with all your might. You know it's leading you down a road of dissatisfaction, yet in the moment you're deciding this, this is so satisfying. Your foot gets heavier on the accelerator as you go faster and faster. That is a road that's always changing and never satisfying, and you know it. But God, he provides us an exit ramp, one that is never changing and always satisfying. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm giving you an exit. I'm giving you an exit ramp. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Every temptation you experience right now has been experienced by so many more before you. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape is the exit ramp. And at the bottom of the exit ramp is the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're on that road of temptation, you're on 100 miles an hour pursuing one thing after the next, responding to those temptations, letting your heart express its evil desire. God is providing you with the off-ramp and saying, come on down, come to me, come to my cross. As you wash through that cross, cross, I'm going to cleanse you and set you right and make you right in my sight. God's exit ramp. The bottom is the cross of Jesus Christ and it's filled with good gifts, perfect gifts that will always satisfy. You know what they are. Let them run through your mind right now. Yes, you have been given life, but you have been given life in a church full of accountability. People to help you face the temptations that uncover the evil desire in your hearts. People in your life that are willing to walk alongside you and help you to live in repentance and experience healing and forgiveness and victory. You have the word of God that is declared week after week. And every time you open it, God pours himself by the power and might of his word into your heart to change your heart. You have been gifted with the power of prayer. Any moment of any day, you can step to the feet of Jesus and offer your prayer requests there and cry out to him for help as you deal with these temptations that are uncovering the true nature of who you are. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the one that does not change, he always satisfies. The road of temptation never satisfies, and it's always changing. Because you're realizing, if I go after this next thing, it eventually will not satisfy, and I need to go after the next thing. But God always promises through his son, Jesus Christ, to satisfy There are easy 
gifts to receive from the Lord, but there are also some not so easy ones. We have to be careful, church, that we're not identifying what the good and perfect gifts are. That's God's responsibility to determine what they are. And we run to the the feel-good gifts that he gives to us, but there are some times when we are going too fast down the road of temptation where God says, I'm going to need to intervene here in in a pretty serious way. And since you're not taking the off-ramp, I'm going to force you onto it. And sometimes it's not a pretty sight as we go to that exit ramp because we're refusing to do it. But here's what I know about this. If you are a child of God, if you are the one that believes in Jesus Christ and have accepted what he has done on the cross for you and you continue to satisfy the lusts of your heart, the evil desires, he is going to intervene because he is not going to let you get to the point of death. He won't do it. And so he has to get in the way. When our son Caden was two years old, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so that began a routine for Wendy and myself four times a day if things were good. Four times a day, we had to hold this two-year-old down as he kicked and screamed because of what was about to happen to him. Holding him down to give him a needle full of insulin, which would save his life. Kicking and screaming. Do you think he thought in that moment that was a pleasant experience? It absolutely was not. It was horrible for his parents as well. But when I think about what God has to do sometimes to keep us from running through the stop signs and the yield signs straight to the destruction that our own nature will bring to us, he sometimes has to sit on us to deliver the life-saving injections that can only come from him. If you are a brother or you are a sister in Christ, his good and perfect gift for you is that you would not reach death and he will not let you reach destruction. And sometimes it's not going to feel good and you're not going to like it, but in the end, you will be so pleased that he didn't let you get to that point. God is keeping you from destruction. But church, let's work to take the off-ramp beforehand. Let me close with this. If you think about our church name, the summit analogy, we're called to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of various kinds. That's us, considering it pure joy whenever we face trials of various kinds. That's the hike to the summit. The hike up is never easy. The air gets thinner, your legs start to burn, your back gets sore. But all through that process of climbing to the summit, you are developing perseverance You are expressing true faith as you are developing perseverance, steadfastness, strength, patience, so that you would come eventually to the place where you are mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. It is a life's work toward through the gospel of Jesus Christ 
because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you would come to a place where you are reflecting the person of Jesus more and more and more, which means becoming complete and not lacking anything. Said opposed to that is the person that's on the road that is driven by temptation. You are here, and as you continue to give in to the temptation, fueling that own selfish desire that you have in your heart, you are giving in to sin, and you are giving in to sin, and you are giving in to sin, and sin, when it becomes full-grown, gives birth to what James says is death. It's exactly the opposite process that God wants us to be walking through. Death is as incomplete an experience as you can have. Being mature and complete is the absolute fullest experience you can ever have because it ultimately ends with eternity side by side with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I suppose I should ask this as we kind of wrap things up. Where are you right now? What would you say of your life? Are you someone that is experiencing the victory that comes from true faith in Jesus Christ, living a life that's pleasing to him, step after step after step, receiving the good things that he has for you along the way, developing your steadfastness so that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything? Or are you the one that's on the road that continues to give in to the temptations that are before you. Jesus has the answers. Even if you're in relationship with him, running to the cross of Jesus Christ is still the place for us to be. Know this, temptations will continue to come. And it's my hope and prayer that these temptations, as they reveal your true heart, drive you to the feet of Jesus. If you have more questions about that, please know this. Your pastoral staff, your elders, we stand ready to talk to you about it. But we want you to see, we want to see you growing in the resistance of the temptation, being satisfied with the things that God has for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you as um, we close the word together. I pray, Lord, that it would not have fallen void, that your church would hear your words that you would do a mighty work through your word. Lord, for the individual that continues to suffer from temptation, giving into it, I pray, Lord, that you would give them victory. Lord, I pray that you would give them humility to ask for help. I pray, Father God, that you, by the power and might of your Holy Spirit in each one of us, would continue to help us our climb with real faith, with our eyes fixed on you, receiving everything that you have for us. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Mm -hmm.